Welcome to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Skin care and plastic surgery are hot topics these days. Let Dr. Rubenstein answer your questions and explain what you'll want to look for in aesthetic products and cosmetic procedures. Get ready for a discussion about all things aesthetic. Now, live from Miami, Florida, American Board Certified Plastic Surgeon, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. This is Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Welcome to New Reflections. We have a show this week that really relates to every procedure that we do, more or less, in the world of aesthetics. It's talking about anesthesia. The show this week is called This Won't Hurt a Bit, and we're talking about anesthesia options. We've got a great lineup of guests, some really interesting stuff to talk about. We're going to start the show off talking a little bit about the history of anesthesia, and then I'm going to have uh, our first guest join us. That's Dr. Jane Fitch. Dr. Fitch is a board-certified anesthesiologist, and she is also uh, the president-elect of the American Society for Anesthesiologists. And we'll talk about different options for anesthesia, local anesthesia, sedation. People call it twilight. And we'll talk about general anesthesia, actually going to sleep. And we're going to get into a new drug a little later in the show. And this drug has promised to really change how post-operative pain is controlled. That drug's called Expirel, and we've got two guests to talk about that. We've got Dr. Robert Scranton, who is the executive medical director of the medical health sciences at Pacera Pharmacy, or Pharmaceuticals. That's the company that makes uh, Expirel, the drug we're going to talk about. And then Dr. Stephen Finical, who is a board-certified plastic surgeon practicing in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we will be talking about uh, his use in his practice. Now, just to begin the show, let, let's talk a little bit about how anesthesia came about. Because, you know, medicine's been around since the dawn of time. People have been trying to make themselves feel better and trying to cure disease and, and make people well. Problem is, in order to do that, it's been difficult before the use of in anything that could make you more comfortable. Because imagine having uh, your... Having a, a, a tumor removed from you without any anesthetic, that wouldn't be much fun. And I have to tell you, one of the biggest anxiety-provoking things, probably the thing that most patients are concerned about, is the anesthesia when they're going to have surgery. It's not the, uh, the procedure itself, more or less. It's really more the uh, anesthesia that provokes lots of anxiety. People get real nervous about it. And so we're going to try and have this show be a, a, a reference for you and teach you what you should know about anesthesia and what the truth is. There's a lot of stuff out there that makes the uh, anesthetic fear higher, and it really doesn't have to be. It's very safe, very effective, and thousands and thousands of procedures are done in every city throughout the world every day without any trouble. Well, let's talk about it now. Anesthesia, the first discussions of anesthesia anywhere, when we talk about the history of it, are probably in European and, and Asian use, uh, going way, way back. One of the earliest things people used were in this group of plants called solanum, and it's things like nightshade, mandrake, henbake. These are poisons, and, and they are, but they've also used in very small amounts to create anesthesia, to take away pain. Now, when you're looking specifically at pain, in ancient Greek uh, and Roman history, opium was used, as well as some of those other uh, herbal preparations to try and invoke anesthesia. And it was actually fairly advanced to be using opium at that time. One of the interesting things I found in preparing for the show, this is kind of neat, 
Native American Incans, the, the Inca civilization, had their own use of anesthesia. And, and they had this idea that they had to drill holes in the skull to let the bad spirits out. And they would do that with some local anesthetic. And the way this would work is the, the doctor, the Incan doctor, if you will, would chew on cocoa leaves. Now, what that happened, what happens with that is you're releasing basically cocaine into the mouth of this Incan doctor. And not only is a doctor getting a little high from this cocaine, he then spits into the wound he's creating and drilling to create anesthesia. And cocaine is one of the most potent anesthetics. We actually have used it in surgery and people continue to use it, particularly for uh, nose surgery, rhinoplasty. Now, cocaine was first used in uh, as a local anesthetic in surgery, in eye surgery. And this was uh, actually Surprisingly, as recently as 1884, it's not really that old, and it was used in, in the spine a few years after that. Now, really what we use most of the time for general anesthesia these days is stuff that's inhaled, and that has an even longer history. You look back, and there were Italian surgeons, uh, the Borgogni, uh, Borgognoni, Borgognoni uh, father and son. I think Ugo was the father, uh, something like Theodore, I think, was the son, something along those lines. This is the late 12th and early 13th century. They were using what was called sopophoric sponges. Basically, the idea is you take a sponge, you soak it in a bunch of stuff. And in this case, it was opium, hemlock, and mandrake, you know, reaching back to uh, ancient Greece. And they would soak these sponges and they'd dry them up and, and they'd have these sponges prepared. And they would moisten the sponge when it was ready to be used and hold it around the nose of the person they're operating on. And they would inhale the vapors that would come off of it. And that was the first use of any kind of inhaled anesthetic, and it worked fairly well. Uh, moving on from that, uh, uh, in the late 13th century, around 1275, a doctor named Raymond Luyus, this is a Spanish doctor, came up with something that he called sweet vitriol, vitriol oil, uh, and that would create vapors that people could breathe and get, anest- get anesthetized with. Problem was it was flammable, and you can imagine it was not a good idea to have fires in the operating rooms. That really didn't catch on long term, but it was used for quite a while. Nitrous oxide, which is a gas that was uh, first thought about uh, by Joseph Priestley in 1772, and we're getting further along in history. Nitrous oxide is something that people used uh, and still use today in some instances, and ether you get, if you look at old movies and you see people using a little mask they would have soaked or a sponge and they put it over the, the patient's face to breathe a little bit before they went in the operating room or a little bottle that they'd pour into a sponge and hold over a patient's uh, mouth and nose, that was typically ether. And uh, there's actually a little controversy as to who was the first person to describe using it. A guy named Crawford Long uh, was the first person that had the idea he saw patients that would be stumbling around after recreational use of ether and bump themselves and hurt themselves and have to get procedures, and they really didn't seem to care about the pain. So from that, they started thinking, well, maybe we could use it. And then at Mass General Hospital, Massachusetts General, uh, a guy named William Morton was the first person to administer anesthesia in a demonstration of removing a jaw tumor. So we're talking about removing a tumor without anesthesia. This is the first description of anyone using anesthesia to take a tumor out of the jaw. The doctor that did the surgery was Dr. John Warren. Dr. William Morton was the guy that gave the anesthesia, probably the first anesthesiologist uh, on record. And that was in 1846. And the actual term anesthesia was coined a little bit after that. 
uh, at the beginning of the use of the ether. And so the, the, the term anesthesia comes from Oliver Wendell Holmes, who suggested the term anesthesia, and it stuck. So now that we've come full circle on the world of anesthesia, you have the whirlwind tour of the history, anesthesia has come a really, really long way. And to talk about modern anesthesia, we're very lucky to have a, an illustrious guest, we have Dr. Jane Finch. I want to introduce Dr. Finch to the show. She's a board-certified anesthesiologist. She's professor and chairperson of the Department of Anesthesia at the University of Oklahoma. And she is the president-elect of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Dr. Finch, welcome to New Reflections. Thank you very much, Dr. Rubenstein. It is a treat to be here and be able to chat with your audience. Well, it's it's great to have you. I can think of no one better than to, to help us talk about anesthesia. And you heard me talking a little bit at the beginning of the show. Anesthesia is what makes people the most nervous when they come in to have a procedure. Uh, they really don't seem to care as much about something going wrong with surgery, but when it comes to the anesthetic, there's a lot of fear. Do you experience that in your practice? Absolutely, and and that's what I hope that your guests will walk away from having a much greater appreciation and understanding for how safe we have made anesthesia and therefore surgery in modern times. You did a great job with the historical perspective, but let me update it a little bit and, and put it in modern context. Um, you know, when I first started administering anesthesia back in the 1970s, we had a death rate of 1 in 10,000, which is very scary. So now you fast forward to 2013, and, and we have death rates of maybe 1 in 300 or 400,000. So we are dramatically safer than we have ever been in the past. And in part, that's because of now having a lot of board-certified anesthesiologists out there able to take care of patients. We've also attributed it to our modern drugs and our modern monitoring and our modern equipment that help allow us to do this. And what's interesting, if you look at safety and particular patient safety in our specialty of anesthesiology, we were actually the first medical specialty to coin the term patient safety and it dates back to the 1980s, and actually anesthesiology was the first medical specialty to actually have an anesthesia patient safety foundation. And so we formed that back in the mid-80s, and it was almost 1997 before the AMA got on board with their national patient safety foundation. So our, our specialty has had patient safety at its forefront really the whole entire time, but Probably the turning point for it, interestingly enough, was an ABC 2020 series back in 1985, that, or 1982, that was coined the deep sleep. And it talked yeah, about problems yeah, with anesthesia. Yeah. Anesthesiologists by far are, are the people that are most concerned and most in tune with exactly what's happening. You mentioned something a little earlier about monitoring. And before we get into the actual descriptions of various anesthetics people can use, that the monitoring, in, in my estimation, is what makes us much safer than ever before. And, and for those of you listening, we know everything that's going on with you while you're under anesthesia. And it doesn't matter what form of anesthesia we might be using. We can monitor everything. We know your heart rate. We know your blood pressure. We know how fast you're breathing. We know how much oxygen's getting into you. We know how much carbon uh, dioxide's coming out. Uh, we have. Uh, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide uh, monitors. We know exactly what's going on with you as you're breathing 
in and out, and we can monitor everything about you, even brain activity. There are monitors that can be used to monitor your brain and know exactly how wakeful you are. So we really, in modern medicine today, know more than ever before about what's going on with you and your body during surgery. And I think that's the reason that we're able to react and control anything that starts getting off the track if we need to. And so that, that's really what's made things really, really safe. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the numbers. It really, you know, one in three to 400,000 is a, you know, we're talking about a fraction of 1% is being real risk. So bear that in mind. Right. Uh, let's talk about the different choices in anesthesia, you know, just to run down things. We can do a lot of things under local anesthesia. And that was the way many things were done, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago in the field of plastic surgery. A lot of things were done with, with purely local anesthesia. Uh, these days, Local anesthesia is used and, and sometimes used by people that are less trained, and we're going to talk about that later in the show, uh, but local anesthesia can be a safe way to do things. It may not be the most comfortable way, and it's not without its risk either. There's this perception that local anesthesia is the uh, the biggest, you know, the safest way to go, but the truth is it takes a good amount of the stuff to keep people comfortable on bigger procedures and there's risk to it. You, know, you can give too much lidocaine. You can give too much local anesthesia, and it creates a problem. Right. You definitely can reach toxic levels, and that's what you have to be monitoring for. Right. But in terms of all the different types of anesthesia, you know, local anesthesia so that the audience is aware is where you just go in and you, you infiltrate or you inject local anesthetic into a small, specific area. Whereas other types, other ways that we have to keep you comfortable during a surgical procedure actually involve perhaps different types of what we call regional anesthesia. So we can active, actually selectively numb up just one of your arms or one of your legs or an area of your body. Uh, we can do it by mixing um, local anesthesia in with your spinal fluid or by bathing your nerve roots with local anesthetic. And then, of course, the other way that we have is a general anesthetic. And the general anesthetic is where you actually totally lose consciousness and we control all aspects of your heart rate and your blood pressure and your breathing and all of those aspects that we're monitoring. Now, most of the ways... Now, let's talk about some of these terminologies. So, you know, local okay. anesthesia, as you say, if we're going to take a mole off, we inject a little bit of the stuff around the area of the mole and it makes that area numb and we can actually cut the skin, put stitches in, stop bleeding, do all that without having any pain. Right. Helps control some bleeding because there's stuff in the local anesthesia that helps shrink down blood vessels and make things safe for bleeding. So local anesthesia for smaller procedures is a perfectly good way to go, and even some medium-sized procedures may be worthwhile. It's always an option. In fact, even when we're doing higher levels of anesthesia, we frequently use local anesthesia to help keep the patient more or less comfortable both during and even after the procedure once we're done. Now, the next step up you mentioned is regional things. These are things like nerve blocks where we inject local anesthesia around an area where there's a nerve, a main nerve that serves a whole area. So, for example, when you go and have dental work done and the dentist makes four different injections around your teeth and now you can't feel anything, well, those are nerve blocks. And they're injecting right where a nerve is coming out and it numbs up that nerve and everything that that nerve covers. And so one injection on one side of your face can numb up 
a whole chunk of you, for example, your whole left upper lip and cheek and lower lid, that's all done by one nerve and you can inject in that area, that whole area is going to go numb and there's, uh, you can use that around the face, you can use it around the body. And when you're talking about by going around the spine or into the spinal fluid, it sounds kind of scary, but people do it all the time, especially in labor and delivery when you're having babies. This is spinal anesthesia and epidural anesthesia. Now, spinal anesthesia is just like a regional block. You're putting a needle in, injecting stuff around one of the main roots of a nerve in an area and uh, anesthetizing and making that area numb. Epidural anesthesia, which is probably more commonly used in uh, things like C-sections and other gynecologic procedures, is where they put a tiny little catheter into the area where your spinal fluid is, and then you, you are able to drip little bits of anesthetic into that area, numbing up all those nerves at once and keeping control of that. And that's something that you can increase or decrease and help adjust the levels of anesthesia. So you know, talk to us, before we get into things like sedation and general anesthesia, tell us the, the pluses and minuses of using things like uh, spinal and epidural anesthesia. Well, obviously the biggest advantage for using what we call a regional technique or a spinal or an epidural for a C-section is that the mom is able to be awake and experience the birth of her child. And if she had had to have that same delivery or that same C-section under general anesthetic, well, then obviously she's going to be asleep when it happens. And so that's probably one of the biggest advantages um, is that you can maintain uh, your awareness um, during the procedure and you can communicate with the surgeon or your anesthesiologist or if it's a delivery, you have your significant other in. Um, so those are some of the big advantages for someone being awake that during that time period. Disadvantage, what are the troubles with the spinal or epidural anesthesia? Well, sometimes we actually aren't able to do it either because there are reasons why we shouldn't be um, placing that needle in someone's back, perhaps if they're on anticoagulants for any reason. Um, oh. So there may be times when it's contraindicated to, to actually do that type of a block. So um, if someone has thin blood using anticoagulants, if you have a medical condition that requires you to take uh, medications that will make your blood thin so it won't clot, that is a reason not to be poking a needle around the spine. Right, because then you could have some bleeding around the spinal cord that could cause some pressure and cause some nerve injury or, or nerve damage. And so you wouldn't be able to do that type of a anesthetic technique if the patient now, were on with, blood thinners. With epidural, you're able to adjust levels and you can kind of keep that going, but spinal has a limit. Well, actually now we can do both a spinal or an epidural as either what we call a single shot where we just go in with the needle and inject the drug or with either of those techniques we can actually put one of those thin little catheters in and leave it in place and then have the ability to either continuously drip medication in or intermittently, you know, periodically inject medicine into the catheter for a period of time. All right, so you can actually, as it used to be with spinal anesthesia, you got yourself, you know, two to three hours, and right. once it went off, you're kind of in trouble. So that's right. nice. Now you can actually add some more and basically uh, feed the meter, if you will. Right, exactly. All right, and so spinal and epidural are great options for things up to what point in the body? How high in the body can you go before you start worrying? Because, you know, for those of you listening, we're, we're numbing up an entire area 
that's controlled by nerves coming right out of the, the spinal cord. You know, this is the main area of sensations, and it's safe, except when you get up to a certain level, because we're numbing everything, not just the the uh, pain nerves. In some of these instances, we're also numbing up your ability to move, and that movement's important when you get up to a certain level where you're breathing. So, up to how high in the body do you think spinal or epidural anesthesia is is safe? Most folks would be doing spinal or epidural for procedures that might would be in the lower portion of your your abdomen or your belly called your pelvis and then in your abdomen, maybe up in between that level of where your belly button is and, and certainly below where your nipple line would be. Um, that would sort of, your, your nipple line would probably be about as high as you would be going safely with a level from a, a spinal or an epidural to be doing a procedure. Yeah, now, one thing I want to point out is that in other countries, spinal anesthesia or epidural anesthesia, mostly spinal, I think, is is used a lot more than it is in, in our country and at lots of levels. And one of the issues that people may have in having certain procedures done outside the country is they don't have necessarily the, uh, the same safety guidelines that we might have in our institutions. And I've heard many different breast procedures being done under spinal anesthesia and that is a little risky, in my opinion. And some people have even done them with uh, an epidural block. And, again, you have different types. When you do these epidural blocks in particular, you can have a couple of different levels. So you can block everything so that you don't feel anything or you can't move anything. Or alternatively, sometimes you can just sort of block it so that you don't feel, but you may vaguely have some some movement. So it all depends on your choice of drug that you use, that local mm. anesthetic that you're infiltrating. And so you would be aiming for a nice little block of sensation in that area of the chest where you would be operating for breast surgery. Um, but again, like you said, most likely that's also going to be supplemented with some sedative medications and maybe even some pain relieving medications through the IV. And then sure, that sort of sure. gets you into a, a combined procedure where we're doing monitored anesthesia care, so we're monitoring everything. We're giving you drugs through your IV to make you comfortable and keep you comfortable so that you're relaxed and you're sleepy and drowsy and you don't have pain, but yet if we need to wake you up and talk to you, we can do that. And then we numb up the surgical area where they're working. All right, so that's great segue. Now we're moving away from the spinal and epidural and all the regional ways of doing anesthesia, and we're going into what we call MAC, or monitored anesthesia care. Some people call it twilight anesthesia, because really, you're awake, you're breathing for yourself, but they're giving you the happy juice. So you're relaxed, and you're not really totally aware of what's going on. You may have moments where you feel some discomfort, and you might need to be given a little bit more pain medicine or maybe a little bit more local anesthesia to be put in the area where we're doing the surgery, but you probably won't remember it because a lot of these medications will make you forget everything that happens around that time. So in the end, you'll have a pretty good uh, experience with this MAC or twilight anesthesia. So in your mind, Dr. Fitch, what is uh, MAC or twilight anesthesia good for and where would you make the jump into general anesthesia? Well, a lot of it is going to depend on 
the patient, and then a lot of it will also depend on the specific surgical procedure. Those are always the two things that lead and guide our decision-making process. So, um, you know, some patients are very nervous and anxious, and others, if they perhaps have a medical background, have a total understanding for what goes on. And so they might be willing to, you know, be a little bit more awake in whatever, where someone who knows nothing about healthcare and is perhaps very scared might would prefer to um, really be asleep or, or have heavier sedation. And so we've got the ability to titrate that level. Right. So, you know, in, in plastic surgery, a lot gets done with sedation or MAC uh, anesthesia along with local anesthesia. It's a perfectly safe way to do nearly everything that we do. But in my practice, where I do procedures that uh, really I'd, I'd like to have the muscle relaxed, I like to do those with general anesthesia because when you're asleep, we can completely relax you and relax your muscles. And it makes things easier and, in my opinion, a little bit safer uh, to work on. And then you wake up and you don't remember or hear, see, feel anything. Uh, now, I usually do that for my breast augmentation surgery and for tummy tucks. Uh, tummy tucks, we work on the muscle. Breast augmentation, we're working with muscle. So I prefer to have them completely relaxed. I've done it with just uh, sedation and local anesthesia. It certainly can be done that way. And in fact, uh, I've done tummy tucks with spinal and epidural anesthesia, and it works quite well uh, for patients that cannot be intubated. Though the wor working around the muscle is a little bit, it's a little bit jumpier than it, than it could be if it were under general. But it certainly can be done safely and get very nice results that way. And so, for patients that, uh, for whatever reason, can't be uh, helped to be relaxed and asleep, then we offer them that. It's a, a sort of an awake tummy tuck. It's uh, a pretty comfortable experience for the patient, and it's a little bit less uh, medication that they receive, so they're after the surgery, they're a little more comfortable. And we're going to talk a little bit about being comfortable after anesthesia in just a little bit. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back talking with Dr. Jane Fitch about anesthetic choices and techniques. We'll take a short break here and uh, be right back after just a few messages here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. Make sure you do your homework. Why? This is not my car I'm working on. I may settle for an okay job on that, but I won't settle for anything less when it comes to my body. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust. You can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. That's 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard in the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Adam Rubenstein, a board-certified plastic surgeon, and your host on New Reflections, and I'm here with Dr. Jane Fitch. Again, she is the president-elect of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. We're having a great discussion about different techniques of anesthesia, trying to help you understand what the choices are and how it all works. We were just talking about being sedated, you know, having that twilight happy medicine for a little while and uh, and having some local and being comfortable that way. And we're just getting into the idea of going to sleep. So, Dr. Fitch, if you could give us a quick rundown on what is the experience like of going to sleep? This is where people get really scared. They don't mind so much what uh, they like to call twilight, the MAC anesthesia, because they feel like they're still awake. They're not totally asleep and, and they're comfortable with that. It's the idea of being totally asleep and not, you know, basically giving up control of everything that makes them nervous. So run us through all the, the, the things that make it safe and comfortable for the patient. Tell us what's the experience like with general anesthesia. Oh, sure, Dr. Rubenstein. Um, obviously, for most adults, the way that we're going to help them fall off to sleep is by giving them medication through an IV. So the very first thing they have to have is an IV or a catheter or a needle into one of their veins so that we can give them fluid and give them these medications. Now, for children, when we put them to sleep most of the time, we actually let them breathe some gases to fall asleep. So there are a couple of different ways right from the start that differ in terms of how we get someone off to sleep. But the main thing for patients to understand is it's so incredibly safe now with all of our monitors and our equipment and our drugs that we have available. Um, and they also need to have take great comfort in knowing that we as the anesthesiologists are there as their patient safety advocate. So from the time we render them in, in, unable to feel pain, if it's a local or a regional or a general anesthetic, we're there to make sure that they're safe all the way until they have recovery back to their normal state. So and for so, the adults, for the adults that have an IV, they're going to get uh-huh. a little bit of stuff in the IV to start things off, just to right. take the edge off, make them comfortable. Right. And then if they go, if we put them all the way to sleep, then obviously we're going to keep a really close watch on all of their uh, heart rate and blood pressure and their breathing and their oxygen levels and all of those and their temperature, all of those types of parameters. And then while they're asleep, we may or may not have to actually support their breathing with a breathing tube. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes that's what patients sort of uh, attribute and might feel a little bit of a sore throat after they're recovering if they've if we've needed to put in one of those breathing tubes to be able to breathe for them while they're asleep. So a lot of whether we do that or not depends on the surgical procedure being done, and then a lot of it also depends on, on the patient. Now, there's a couple different breathing tubes, too. You know, in, in recent years, I guess in the last 10 years or so, maybe more, uh, there's been this thing called an LMA or laryngeal mask anesthesia, which is a special kind of tube that kind of helps you breathe. It doesn't necessarily have to, and it's a little more gentle, isn't it? Yes, and, and some people may 
um, experience less of a sore throat with that, although that's not always the case. So again, depending on the procedure and depending on the patient, we might would choose one or the other of those techniques to be able to maintain someone's airway and breathe for them while they're asleep. And now with general anesthesia, you know, people are always worried about things that go wrong and, and this, this idea of patient awareness, you know, you and I talked about this as we were preparing for the show and it's something that really drives people nuts. I mean, I get every time that there's a movie of the week that talks about someone being aware during anesthesia, you know, being under general anesthesia, not being able to say or, or do any, or do anything about it, but feeling everything, you know, that is, exceedingly rare, even more rare than more more complicated complications and more serious complications, and people worry about it like crazy. Can you talk a little bit about patient awareness? Yeah, I really hope everybody paid attention to what you just said. It is extremely rare, and a lot of it depends on the type of surgery. So it is the most rare just in normal general surgery type settings. Um, a little bit more in cesarean sections when we're doing the C-sections to deliver babies. And then probably the third category where it might occur would be cases where people are having heart surgery and we have to use that heart-lung bypass machine. And, and the most common scenario in which it occurs is usually trauma situations. And a lot of that might be because the patient's had a massive trauma and so we're doing everything possible to support their heart and their lungs, and, and sometimes we have to get them surgically stable before we're able to get adequate amounts of, of drug on board, but it's extremely rare, and so patients need to understand that. And for the most part, you know, in a lot of cases, fortunately, it's not really associated with pain. They may remember hearing things, but not necessarily uh, pain, and also a lot of people confuse it with NAC anesthesia or sedation analgesia during right. pain. Right, yeah, that's a so great point. So if you point. put somebody in twilight, point. they kind of tend to confuse that a little bit with intraoperative awareness. So, you know, they need to know before they're going off to sleep whether or not they're just going to be sedated or whether they're actually going to have a general anesthetic because certainly then... If, if they remember things, then it might make a little bit more sense that perhaps they had just had twilight sleep and some sedation. Right. Yeah, uh, that's a great that's a great point. I guess I can see that confusion happening. What, what are the numbers? Do you have any idea how, what, one in how many cases would you have a report of, of awareness? Oh, good grief. I mean, for the general OR, I mean, it, it's really about one to two-tenths of one percent is, is the awareness. I, I don't think you would ever... Even for any of the others, the C-sections and the cardiac surgery, it's still very low. Cardiac surgery might only be 1% to 2% where you would have Now, what do you think in terms of aesthetic procedures? You know, we're, we're talking about beauty stuff, cosmetic surgery, that kind of thing. I, I don't actually know that we've ever even had cases reported in that specific patient population. But well, certainly see, it's, something, it's something that our specialty t- takes very seriously. We, we have a stamp out awareness campaign, um, you know, there it, it can occur because of errors, either mechanical errors with devices delivering medication or human errors, but for the most part, it really is just a, a, a reaction that we can't really explain. We've, we've given the patient 
adequate amounts of drugs and just for whatever reason the patient has a very different response or reaction to the medication. But we're talking something, you know, in your estimation, to your knowledge, you're not even aware of case reports of it happening with with uh, cosmetic procedures. No, like I said, the, the most common population are going to be the massive trauma cases. Sure, and, and that's understandable. Cardiac, Just trying to keep surgery and, and then C-sections. Those are the three big categories. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, it, one thing I want to bring up before we, we're going to go on to our next subject is uh, anesthesiologists are busy people up there at the head of the bed during surgery. There's this idea, and I always used to joke about this with my anesthesiologist, that an anesthetic machine is just a, a big, complicated-looking thing with one big switch. You know, you turn it on, and you go read a magazine, and you come back, and you turn it off when surgery is over. And, and that's what that's what a lot of people in the public think. Um, but the truth is that the anesthesiologist, as you very eloquently have described, uh, is really the person that is the most important part of the procedure that's really keeping an eye on you and keeping you alive and keeping you comfortable during the whole thing. So it's not just flipping the machine on and off. Right. Uh, no, we're, now, we're keeping them safe while you do what you need to do surgically. Yeah, absolutely. And I, we, we value that very, very highly. Now, we've been talking about ways of keeping you comfortable during surgery. And then there is the, the next step, which is what happens after surgery. And there's lots of different ways to keep you comfortable after surgery. And one of the newest ways is with this, there's a new drug that we can use. There's a drug that we can inject that will give you a few days of anesthetic relief. And that's unusual. You know, the things that we've used in the past usually give us a number of hours. You know, if I do a smaller procedure, I might inject some stuff that will give you three or four hours of relief, and then you start feeling a little sore in the area where we did the surgery. This stuff will last for days. And I want to bring on our next guest to talk about that and introduce Dr. Robert Scranton. Dr. Scranton is the Executive Medical Director of the Medical Health Sciences at uh, Pacera Pharmaceuticals, and he's here to talk to us about this new drug. The drug is called Exparel. Uh, Dr. Scranton, welcome to New Reflections. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rubenstein. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, we, we're happy to have you, and, and we're, tell us about this Exparel. What's, what's new about it? Well, so Expro was approved uh, by the FDA. It's a liposomal formulation of bubivacaine that, as you said, is infiltrated into the surgical site at the close of the time of the procedure to produce that post-surgical analgesia. Most clinicians are familiar with the, the local anesthetic bubivacaine because it's been around since the 60s, but it only provides about eight hours of pain control by numbing the tissues around that surgical site. But Expro uses Depofoman, which is a unique drug delivery technology uh, that encapsulates the bubivacaine and it releases it over time. This can give patients so, up, so this up is to taking, three days. So basically, this is taking what we've been using all along: bubivacaine, marcaine, you know, all these long-acting, uh, all the long-acting injectable stuff is what I was describing—the kind of stuff that I might inject if I. Uh, took a mole off of somebody and I wanted to make them comfortable for the rest of the day, I'd inject some of that stuff and it's going to give you a few hours after we're done. But what you're saying is that you've taken this bupivacaine, the stuff that long-acting stuff, and made it even longer-acting because you've got a special way of mixing it up so that it lasts in the tissue even longer. Absolutely. That's, that's the novelty of this particular drug. We've not changed how the bupivacaine works or its structure. We've just changed how it is released um, over a period of time to give you that desirable numbing effect for greater than eight hours because we know that the majority of the pain after surgery is really intense, the first 24 to 48 hours, and you would really like to have that continual numbing sensation there 
this drug allows you to achieve those goals. Well, you know, that's important. And you mentioned that something that's really important I want to make sure patients are aware of. And it's kind of interesting. Studies have been done that have looked at a patient's overall pain experience with procedures. And it turns out that the first 24 hours of their experience sets them up for the remainder of their experience. So if someone wakes up from surgery and they've got a lot of pain and that, that pain continues through that first day, they're likely to have a longer experience of discomfort, having more pain through their recovery and just being more uncomfortable than someone that wakes up a little easier. Uh, folks like Dr. Fitch might give them some medication into their IV that help keep the pain away. We might be using things uh, locally like Expirel to make them more comfortable. And those folks that have an easier time in the first 24 hours, that carries on. They tend to have an easier time throughout their recovery. So it's an important period of time that we're talking about. Absolutely. And that's been observed. We talk about wind-up and getting ahead of the pain because once you're in those throes of the pain, it takes oftentimes a lot more medication to to cover that pain. And oftentimes we do that we rely upon the use of opioids. And opioids are, are systemic medications and they, as a consequence have systemic side effects. So if you can, as you said, cover that pain well, treat the pain at its source, minimize that wind-up, get ahead of the pain, and hopefully as a consequence of all those things, you can reduce their need for opioids and only saving those opioids for that true breakthrough pain that you can't otherwise cover. Uh, And when you're talking about opioids, these are things like morphine, Dilaudid, Demerol. They're pretty serious uh, anti-pain medications. We use them all the time, and they're perfectly safe to use, but it certainly is nice not to have to use them because, as you were alluding to, they do have side effects, and they make folks a little bit nauseous sometimes. They make them feel a little bit kind of weird. Uh, And so if you can get away with using those narcotics, the, the opioids like the morphine and such, it's nice to do. Now, how long does Expirel last? If I put it in at the end of, uh, of a, if I take a mole out and I put a little bit of stuff around there, how long is that patient going to be comfortable? So what we've seen, and we've done numerous studies, our pivotal trials were in, in soft tissue models like hemorrhoidectomy, but we've looked at it also in various cosmetic procedures, and we see a consistent uh, good pain coverage over that 72-hour period. So three days. That's pretty good. That's a nice long period of time. Uh, now, obviously, this has been used for a little while. It was approved how long ago? So the drug was approved uh, last in 20, let's see, 2012. We were just launched the drug in April 20, 2012. So it's just been on the market um, coming up here uh, about a year. And, we, again, we've seen use in major abdominal procedures, but also in cosmetic uh, in in tummy tucks as well so, as breast augmentation. So um, and, pretty, and pretty new drug. Uh, and yeah. so we, we've had it for around a year, and I know people have been using it. We're going to take a very brief break. I'm going to bring on our, our next guest, Dr. Stephen Finical, who is a board-certified plastic surgeon. He's going to tell us about his use of it. I know he's been using it for quite a bit. After these short messages, we're going to return. We'll continue our discussion about anesthetics here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to New Reflections. We are talking about anesthetics. This week's show is called This Won't Hurt a Bit, and we're talking about options in anesthesia. We've had Dr. Jane Fitch educating us about the different options and the way it all works. Just been talking with Dr. Robert Scranton, who has uh, talked about Expirel, a brand-new drug that gives us many days of relief after surgery. And now I want to introduce our next guest, Dr. Stephen Finical. Dr. Finical is a board-certified plastic surgeon uh, practicing in North Carolina. He's been very kind in giving us time to join us while he's away at a conference in Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Finical, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, great to have you. Thanks for giving us your time. I know you're busy with the conference. I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, let's talk about your experience with Expirel. How has it been? What are you using it with? Well, I'll tell you, we first got a, we heard of Expirel ahead of time before it received approval and was launched. And so we actually got it as soon as it was available, and I used it on my very first patient actually May 1st of 2012, so it had just come out. The lady that I first used it on uh, was someone who was having an abdominoplasty. I had operated on her seven years earlier to do a breast augmentation. At this point in her life, she was done having kids. She wanted a tummy tuck. And so I used the Expirel and injected it during the operation. Uh, And when she woke up, she was just noticeably more comfortable than any abdominoplasty I'd ever done before. That included uh, her mobility, her lack of using pain medications. It was just an outstanding difference. Now, the next day after surgery, I asked her, I said, compared to your breast augmentation, how do you think your comfort is now after the abdominoplasty? She said the abdominoplasty is much more comfortable. Now, that would have never <laughs> happened with anyone oh without Expirel. Oh, my Expert. God. No, that's ridiculous. That, that's incredible. i got to tell you, uh, you know, for those of you listening that might not have had these procedures, a tummy tuck typically is way more uncomfortable 
than a breast augmentation. Now, a breast augmentation can be a little sore, you know, especially with putting implants underneath the muscle. So there's going to be some discomfort. But most people are kind of back in a pretty full swing between one and two weeks later, whereas a tummy tuck, you know, you're looking at two to three weeks minimum, and, and it's usually not at a full swing at that point. So it's much more discomfort with a tummy tuck generally. So for someone to say that their tummy tuck was better than their breast augmentation, that's a big statement. Yeah, it made a believer out of me right from the start, and I've used it on tummy tucks extensively ever since, and, I've, and it's not failed me. Every single patient I've used it on has benefited. Uh, the difference uh, is noticed by the recovery room nurses. They see the patients waking up. Uh, they're very comfortable getting up out of the chair. I, I went one patient uh, when we were using it. I came back to say goodbye to them before they were about to leave, and they leaned forward out of their recovery room chair to shake my hand before they left. Now, after having a tummy tuck and having your skin tightened, that's that's usually the last thing that somebody wants to do. And in fact, I've had to tell patients that look, you've had an operation, you have to take it easy. Absolutely. Now that that's pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, it's very encouraging with the drugs. So you use it in tummy tucks. What else, where else have you used it? We've used it on augmentation mastopexies, a, 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 an enhancement of the breast combined with a lift, and we've also used it on uh, breast augmentations. And I guess equally good responses in all. Equally good responses. It, it certainly it you see a more noticeable response where you're used to seeing more difficulty with pain control or more comfort. Uh, so certainly the, the the place to start out, I think, for you know for for seeing the difference was correct in abdominoplasty, but certainly it can be used in almost everything that we do. And I think cosmetic surgery, it's very important that we're going to be uh, delivering pain-free surgery because unlike most other medical specialties, people are not coming to us with pain. So when they right. leave, any pain that they have, we gave them. So I don't <laughs> want to be responsible for that. I would like to leave, have them leave my office very comfortably. Absolutely. Uh, and it, and if, you, it, if you can do it in a way that doesn't require anything additional for them, it, it's, it's nice to do. Have you ever used pain pumps? Yes, I've certainly used pain pumps, and then they can be, I think, a benefit, uh, but I think that Exparel is going to replace those for two reasons. One, the pain pumps are cumbersome, and it's something, an extra appliance that the patient has to deal with. And I think the second thing is, is the pain pump is only as good as where you put it. Now, a lot of people would put the pain pump catheters in a subcutaneous plane and hope that the medicine coming through them uh, diffused into the areas that they wanted it. Other people would put the uh, the pain catheters in a subfascial area that is deeper inside the abdominal wall, but could, could cause some problems doing that. With the Expirel, the beauty of it is we can inject it exactly where we want it. So for an abdominoplasty, when I'm going to do a tummy tuck, while the patient is still asleep in the operating room, so no extra fear of needles or anything like that, they're asleep, I inject each of the rectus sheath muscles, the, the muscles that run up and down the abdomen, the six-pack muscles. I also inject the intercostals, those muscles that come around and kind of follow the, the, the ribs around from the side. Mm -hmm. And then I'll save some for when I finish closure, and then I'll inject the skin edge around the incision so that that stays numb also. Uh, it, it sounds like it's really good coverage. I think I, I've been using pain pumps for a while, and I'm very happy 
with uh, patients choosing those, and, and they've been very happy with the difference in the pain that they experience. But this certainly would be less cumbersome. So I might give Exparel a, a, a try. If you're listening, you think about having one of these procedures, ask your doctor about it. I would certainly uh, recommend it. Before we come to close, we've only got a couple minutes left. Give me your ideas on using sedation versus general. And, you know, I've given my thoughts. So tell us what you think. Well, in, in, in my office, we'll use an all-intervenous anesthetic, uh, typically propofol and remifentanil. Uh, propofol, of course, got the bad name from the, everybody associated oh, with yeah, Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's certainly, if it's used properly, it's an anesthetic agent. It's not a sleep aid. So somebody is monitored. Uh, during their procedure, uh, and as you've uh, eloquently described before, we know everything about them while they're asleep. In fact, I tell my patients it's probably the safest couple hours of their life. Uh, but but during the uh, the procedure itself, we'll use the propofol. And and the the nice thing about the propofol is that as soon as we turn it off, it's like flipping a light switch. It redistributes, and and people wake up. Uh, really without a hangover. Now, we'll supplement with remifentanil, a, a very rapidly acting narcotic, sure, simply so control. that they have some, some pain control then. Right. But boy, so you're, so you guys are using, you're using mostly the MAC or sedation with you, the local, and now with Exparel, you've got terrific post-op pain control. Absolutely. Yes, All right, well, we're, we're coming to the end of the show, and I want to give you guys a chance to let us know. Dr. Fitch, thank you for being on the show. Tell us, if someone wants more information about anesthesia, about anesthetics, about the ASA, where can they look to get more information? Have them go to our website, www.asahq.org. All right, asahq.org. Uh, and Dr. Scranton, if somebody is looking for uh, Exparel, where, where can they get more information? Again, very easy. It's www.exparel.com. That's E-X-P-A-R-E-L.com. They can get all the Exparel product information. And Dr. Finical, when they get when you get back from Atlanta to back to North Carolina and you're back in your practice, how does someone find you and maybe have one of those tummy tucks with Exparel? Well, they can look me up at www.charlotteplasticsurgery.com, and that's all one word, Charlotte Plastic Surgery. Excellent. Well, I want to thank everybody. We've had a great show. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about neck lifts. So we're going to have uh, some national and international experts talking about old and brand new techniques in neck lifts. We've got lots of new things coming up. Thanks for tuning in every week, 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific on New Reflections. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope you stayed informed and entertained today on New Reflections. Please join your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, again next Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You can also email the doctor at info at dr-rubenstein.com or visit his website at www.dr-rubenstein.com. And don't forget to join us next Saturday for new reflections on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a beautiful weekend. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 
visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.